Welcome to Talking Sock. Voice artist, animator and puppeteer Cam Ralph is a whole different kind of triple threat. Known for his role as Giggle Fangs in the wildly popular children's show Giggle and Hoot, Cam shares with me his story of finding his way into puppetry, as well as his approaches to voice and character. And warlord is sort of this kind of voice, he's really gravelly. Oh, I'm going to take you on. Join Cam and I now, here on Talking Sock. Cam, welcome and thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much for having me, Pete. I'm doing well, man. I'm hanging in there. I think uh, with COVID being the way it is and everyone being forced to get a little bit creative with how they're applying their creative arts. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting field to run, but uh, I'm having a good time and, you know, just trying to stay positive. Absolutely. And you're joining me from the Central Coast today. So I'm in Melbourne, you're in the Central Coast. We would have probably been meeting and doing an interview like this regardless, but it is it is nice to hear your voice again. Cam, why puppets? That's an interesting question. And it's one that I've been thinking about ever since I kind of started puppetry because puppetry certainly wasn't my first industry that I fell into. Straight out of high school, I knew that I wanted to get into something involving drawing. So I was drawing cartoons all the time when I should have been focusing in class. And I figured that the next logical step for me was to actually get into comic books as a comic book artist or an inker. I read a lot of comics as a kid, a lot of Marvel, and I just, I really loved the idea of creating stories through visual arts, just these lovely still images and, you know, delving into cinematography as well as good character drawing. But it was actually my mum that directed me into animation straight off because there weren't many schools that were teaching comic book art and there weren't many mentors I could tap into. And she found a little course at uh, Enmore Tafe that I could go for and gave it a shot and jumped in and instantly loved 3D animation. We got to build our own characters and uh, create little animated walk cycles. And the end of year assignment for that year was to create a short film. So that's where I kind of got started in animation, which was sort of my bread and butter for many, many years. But in the back of my head, while doing animation, I've also always wanted to be a voice actor. My very first experience tapping into voice acting was actually watching Mrs. Doubtfire, the opening scene where uh, Robin Williams is like, I gotta make it, I gotta suit, I gotta make it. And he's singing as that little bird. He's playing the cat and the bird bouncing off each other. And I used to love watching that scene. I used to watch it over and over as a kid. And my first thought was, that can't be a job. Like, surely it's just him playing this fake role. And the more as a kid I looked into it, you could actually do it as a job. But as I became an adult and I was working in animation, nobody could really tell me how to do it. Anyone I asked, there was sort of like, oh, I know a guy who's a professional voice actor, but I don't know how he did it. He's just kind of doing it. And so I spent all these years talking to people and, you know, grilling them over, where should I go? What should I do? Should I create a demo? Who should I, how do I get an agent? What What should I be voicing? It actually was when I moved to Melbourne. So this is me sort of in my late 20s now. Mid-20s, I should say. I'm exaggerating. Mid-20s. And uh, I'm in Melbourne and I discovered there was a voice coach down there called Abby Holmes. I approached her and she got me into the booth, gave me some scripts, and we did what she called one-day intensives, which is where she throws you some scripts, you read them, and then she tears them apart as a director, as as a client potentially would and says, okay, well, this word you've got to emphasize and look at the branding and breathing and just all the techniques you really need to learn. So that was me jumping, you know, feet first into voice acting. About a year or two later, I was sitting at a table and this is while I'm an animator back in Sydney now. I'm the animation director on this show called Vic the Viking uh, or Vicky the Viking. Uh, it's really cute. It's about a little boy called Vicky who goes on adventures with his father and his Viking crew. And, you know, they pillage and plunder for looking for treasure. Vicky's whole draw is that he always gets a big idea and saves his father and the gang. And, you know, he's the, the good-hearted, plucky hero. And I'm sitting at this table with all these producers and directors. And I just overhear the producer just sort of go, yeah, well, we're hosting auditions next week. And I sort of perked up and cut my conversation short and went, uh, excuse me, what, what was that? And uh, she said, oh, we're, we're having vocal auditions next week. And I instantly put up my hand and said, uh, can, I, can I audition for that? Is that like against contract or is that going to be a problem? And her first response was, oh, do you, do you do voice acting? And this is, you have to remember, I've been asking everyone I work with, how do I get into voice acting? What do I do? So my first reaction is, yeah. Yeah, I do. I've told you this. Okay. Anyway, can I, can I do it, please? And they very graciously gave me the chance to audition. And I managed to actually score two roles. One was Ulme, the bard, which was this really light and fluffy bard voice. And the other was Fax, which was this really 
Deep in the dark and it's kind of silly person. I got to do those two voices and get into a professional booth with other professional actors. And it was actually them who took me under their wing and introduced me to their voice agent, who I've now been with for the past seven years, which is EM Voices. They're a lovely bunch of people. I absolutely love being represented by them. And that was kind of my first my first segue, I suppose, into voice acting. It was pretty much being in the right place, the right time, but you know, fighting for it for a number of years and doing a lot of free jobs, a lot of scratch audio, whenever they needed like, hey, can you just throw in this voice for this animatic? For anyone who doesn't know, an animatic is just like a rough storyboard version of a cartoon, which is used to set up, you know, basic pre-production of cameras and the director can look at it and figure out cinematography, that sort of thing. And some sometimes they just need a quick voice to throw in that sounds kind of like the real character. Now I'm officially represented at EM Voices and I'm working on this cartoon and it's great. And about two, three years in, this casting call comes in for Giggle and Hoot. This is at the ABC and I know absolutely nothing about it. Even though I love puppetry and I grew up loving voice actors and puppeteers, like I, I adored the Muppets as a kid, anything by Jim Henson, Fraggle Rock and Labyrinth. I saw the casting call for Giggle and Hoot and I thought, okay, this is a really, really high voice. Uh, the the premise was for a little character called Gigglefangs, who was essentially going to be, I think on the early audition, it was a naughty little bat who lives on the hill, who doesn't like color, he doesn't like loud noises, and all the other characters in the show love playing loud games and going on adventures, so he's not very much like that. He likes the nighttime, he likes quiet, no colors, that sort of thing. They sort of thought it was kind of a Dr. Evil mixed with a cute, fluffy ball. I did the vocal audition and in my head I'm thinking this is way too high my voice keeps cracking I'm not going to get this this is uh, you know I'll, I'll give it my best shot but I'm not going to hear back from these people and I very luckily got a callback and so I'm at the ABC studios in Ultimo and I'm about to go in and I'm thinking uh, I don't I don't really know if this is my thing like I, I feel like I'm a bit of an imposter here and they open the studio door and I see the Giggle and Hoot set and I see Jimmy Giggle standing there in his vest and all the puppets are out on display all the artworks on the table and my heart just explodes and I'm thinking oh my god I want want this job so badly now. Like instantly, the second I walked in, I said, I want this job. This looks like too much fun for an adult to have. I just get to play as these characters and entertain kids for a living. Like, oh, this is everything I've, it, it felt like the worlds were finally combining. And I was looking back at that Mrs. Doubtfire scene and I'm I'm sort of reaching out to the kids straight away like he did, you know, voicing the cartoon. So I did the audition. I gave it my best shot and they really liked me and I managed to get the job as Gigglefangs. So that was officially my first day as a puppeteer. I didn't actively seek out puppetry. Puppetry kind of happened as a result of voice acting. I've always come from a background of characters, like uh, my specialty tends to be cartoon characters or anything eccentric or over the top. <laughs> Definitely for commercials that require something a little uh, crazier. But puppetry just came out of the blue and I fell into it, instantly fell in love with it. And I feel as though all of my interests in people like David Strassman, Jim Henson as a kid all came to the surface. And I finally realized, no, this is just another logical step for you. It sort of ties into animation because as animators, we're always looking at acting and thinking about acting and how a character should hold themselves based on A, how they look and B, how they sound. So this felt like the next sidestep for that. So I had voice acting. I had animation and now I had puppetry. So many artists say that that animation was the later form of puppetry, whereas puppetry is the earliest form of animation. And I love that you have an approach that is sort of full circle to that. You're on set with puppeteers and voice actors alike. Who was there to train you to how to use this puppet? I've met Gigglefangs. He's a big, heavy puppet with a trigger mouth mech. How did you actually learn to work with puppets in that environment, which was very professional? Thank you, man. Yeah, it's um, it was a really collaborative thing. I found when I first joined, there were two other puppeteers that were already there. Well, technically three. There was Nick Richard, who was playing Hoot. There was Naomi Young playing Hootabell and Mark Simpson, who was playing Pirate Hootbeard. And I'm very thankful to say that they, for lack of a better term, took me under their wing and really taught me the ropes. Because yeah, you're right. Giggle and Hoot puppets, they're trigger-based. They're not hand-based. So you're not kind of like if you think of a, a Muppet-style puppet, you've got your hand in a sock and you're sort of operating the mouth with your thumb and fingers. With Giggle and Hoot, the mech is more side-on and it's like a pistol trigger. So mentally, it's a little bit of a, a trick to get around because to open the mouth, you're squeezing your hand as opposed to opening your hand. So you feel as though you're going in reverse. And one of the first things I definitely struggled with was lip sync. Quite often the characters talk quite quickly, like um, it's been a while since I've done Giggle Fangs, but I'll try. 
So, Jimmy Giggle, um, I just really want to know, are we going to go out and do a picnic today? Because I really want to go do a picnic. So, you can already tell, like, the phrase is really quick. So, no, Jimmy Giggle, and it's like rabbiting on. So, to try and get that with the trigger, I found as though I was fatiguing quite early with my wrist because you're right, he was a very heavy trigger initially. And I think my problem was because I'd never approached puppetry before, I was trying to open it pretty much on every sound imaginable. So for, hey there, Jimmy Giggle, I would go open, 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 like every time there was practically a vowel. And so very early on, Nick and Naomi sort of reined me in and said, no, 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 you've got to feel out the rhythm of the sentence. And, you know, if you watch a lot of the Muppets and especially early Jim Henson, they had this really nice timbre to their movements as especially uh, Rolf the dog. I love the way he talks. He kind of employs his whole body in the movements and tilts his head. And so I learned to utilize a bit more of the head as opposed to just flapping open the mouth. They were great in terms of teaching me on the set because there were some very difficult maneuvers we had to do, especially when they were behind the window. Obviously, kids see the final result and it, it looks really cute, but they don't understand how many takes you can go through where operating on a green screen if you turn the puppet a certain way and a rod obscures a wing, they can't use that take. They have to redo it because it just it's going to show up and it's going to break the illusion. Behind the window were my weakest parts because I struggled with, you know, sometimes flapping wings, doing lip sync, making sure your eye directions are always to camera or to Jimmy or to the other owls, depending on which direction they were. There was a lot of juggling going on, but you do find the more that you're involved and the more that you do it, it becomes almost like muscle memory. And I found when new puppeteers would come in, they've gone actually through a few hoots and a few hootabells. So when new puppets came, new puppets, new puppeteers came in, I should say, it was interesting to see how they would sometimes trip over the same things I did. But I had somehow overcome them without realizing I had and seeing them do it, but then realizing I wasn't doing it made me think, oh, I've kind of trained that out of me without realizing it. So it's definitely, it's like any sort of athletic trait where you exercise it and you train the muscle and you slowly get better at it. On set, it was definitely Nick and Nay helping me out a lot. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a bit of an induction by fire and I'm so impressed that you, one, were able to jump into ABC Studios and that was your training ground. Like what an amazing opportunity. So let's Let's go back into voice acting because this was the first craft for you. Obviously, you've mentioned that you approached it from a point of inspiration from Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire. But how are you finding characters today? Like, how do you approach your characters? Has it been that you've fit, always fitted to a brief or are you actually developing new characters of your own now and experimenting with voice to fit it? Yeah, look, that's an interesting question. I've quite often uh, with animation, I think we should start there because whenever I was given a chance to voice a new character on Vic the Viking, I was literally just handed a picture of what they looked like. And we would then 20 minutes later go in the booth and you'd have to come up with a voice for it. I think that the visual qualities of any character speak first and foremost about how they're going to sound. Like if you have a really large, overweight character who's very top heavy or has like a big scraggly beard, you're not going to give it a really cute voice. You're going to give it a deep kind of gruff voice or maybe a stupid voice depending on how he's hunched over. You know, if it's like a little fairy, it might sound very different to how a frog might sound because you're thinking about them visually, but you're also trying to think about how their body type is going to influence their voice. So I like to think that animation gave me that running start in terms of looking at the visual traits of a character first and foremost. In terms of creating my own characters, I've definitely dabbled with my own forms of art online. Definitely with YouTube making short films and puppetry videos, that sort of thing. My first actual uh, experiment with doing that was a little cartoon called Munch. It was a little 3D animated cartoon involving a little blue character with little, well, not little, they were very long arms and legs. It was a very cutesy voice, kind of similar to Giggle Fangs, but a bit more ochre, I suppose. So if I could do the voice now. So he sort of sounded a bit like that. He was a bit sort of rounded. He didn't talk too much, but he, oh, ah. And like grunt and fart and burp and all kinds of I get dicky knee from that. There's dicky knee in that. <laughs> it's it's oh, less Mr. rambling. Summers, Mr. Summers. Seriously, it's the same. <laughs> So you and I met in 2019, very early on in 2019, and you were really understated about your work in film and television puppetry and using monitor puppetry. But I realized we actually went to the same school for a time and I first met you during a production of Avenue Q. And I think this had been a quite a hiatus for you coming back to theater productions. So I played Princeton and you played Nikki and we had such an amazing experience and we ended up finding your voice over talents in the show. You were very coy and you were very understated stated about your experience in puppetry because it wasn't at all your first rodeo. But how was it for you translating 
what you knew about monitor puppetry and film and television puppetry into a theatrical performance as Nikki? Yeah, that was legitimately the first time I've ever done musical theatre. So I've I've performed in amateur theatre before, obviously with Short and Sweet, with Out of the Woods, which was the play with Winston and Stephen, uh, Brent and Amy's. And I've never actually done musical theatre involving singing. So th- the reason why I stepped into that was pretty much to throw myself in the deep end and try and sing on stage. Avenue Q has always been a musical that I've loved. The idea of swearing naughty, filthy puppets on stage, something for the adults to really connect with as well as the kids is hilarious. And the thing I love most about Avenue Q is the characters, while they're all flawed, they're all quite interesting in the way that they relate to each other. Nikki in particular was one that I really gravitated to because I see a lot of similarities in him that I see in myself. He's a bit of a doofus. I feel like I'm a bit of a doofus, but he's also loving of his friends. And I feel like his relationship with Rod, even though he oversteps his boundaries and actually outs Rod at a wedding and and does things that are pretty on the nose, he does it through love. He just does it because he's a clumsy guy. This idea of friendship between the two characters was what I really gravitated to. I had actually seen Avenue Q a few years before. The puppeteer who played Hoot when I first joined, Nick Richard, he was in the professional production at the Enmore Theatre. And he also played Nikki and Trekkie. In Avenue Q, if people aren't aware, quite often actors double up their roles. So whoever plays Princeton will quite often play Rod. Whoever plays Nikki will play uh, Trekkie. I think uh, Lucy is also played by uh, Kate, Kate Monster, Monster. And, and various other people. Yeah. So seeing him perform on stage, uh, having seen him in the set doing Giggle and Hoot, seeing him in the set doing monitor puppetry, and then seeing him on stage, it was really interesting because the techniques utilized in Avenue Q kind of break the rules of puppetry where the puppeteer is completely visible the whole time performing just as the puppet does. Initially, it's a little bit distracting. And as an audience member, you think, well, this is weird. I'm not used to this. But I found within a few minutes of watching that professional production, I loved it. And I was I was really engaged with what the puppet was doing. And I completely forgot that the puppeteer was there. So I suppose I had kind of experienced watching how my friend had done it, but I hadn't seen, you know, how I would achieve it. So I knew instantly that I had to you know, push myself physically along with the puppet. I knew that I couldn't go dead uh, or the puppet would feel dead. And so I had some experience doing some YouTube videos with Stuart, which was a Muppety style puppet that I had built and also doing hand puppetry with Winston. But I had never done it in a theatrical way. And one thing that I really learned, I had developed the habit of overacting. And I think partially that came from animation where things are constantly moving. Uh, This idea of keep alive where a character is blinking or kind of adjusting their head and tilting. And just the idea that if you're not moving, you're clearly going dead. And I didn't realize that with the Muppety style puppets, Uh, especially with Avenue Q, even if they're not moving, you can sell it with just a little bit of breathing or just like a maybe a slight head turn, but you really don't need to move too much. So that was the first thing I definitely had to control was uh, limiting my movement and just making sure that the eye directions were always on point. So it's interesting. I think the translation, getting back to your original point from monitor puppetry to theatrical puppetry is definitely just knowing your space. When you're working with a monitor, you have this little four by three space that you can work to. So you have your boundaries essentially, and it's just left and right and straight ahead, up, down. Whereas when you're in a theater, everyone can see you from so many different angles. And it's quite easy to forget that the puppet can sometimes mask you. If you pull the hand in front of your face, you might be acknowledging someone, but if you're there too long, it looks a bit cumbersome and it feels too busy. You may not feel it because you're just, you know, you're holding the puppet there, but the audience can instantly see it. So it felt like a little bit of jumping into the deep end of retraining my brain on what would visually look appealing in terms of the way the puppet was facing. Another thing I realized was definitely the direction they face is interesting. If you're too side on, they can't see your eyes from the audience. So, you know, the character just looks weird. Obviously, you can have a character look behind themselves, but you always want to create this uh, rule of three-quarter perspective where you're never turning too far beyond maybe a 45 degree angle. Even if a character is completely standing to the side of you, you're just looking out at a 45 degree angle. And from the audience, it looks as though you're looking at the other character. So training those muscles definitely took some time. And since we first met and when we finished Avenue Q last year, you've been on quite a journey, both personally and in your career. To put it simply, you got super fit and you did a show in which you were the the lead as a gender fluid AFL player managing Carmen. And then you were cast in Monkey Bar's next touring show, Edward the Emu. So congrats on that. I'm so psyched for you. But I want to know where that momentum came from and what 
the experience has been like for you switching gears from animation as your bread and butter to full-time puppeteering for a theatrical production? Yeah, it's, um, look, I have to say that you guys in the Avenue Q cast are mostly to blame for that uh, newfound momentum because I found getting into Avenue Q was me wanting to challenge myself. That was the only reason I, I went for it because I'd never sung on stage. It was a musical that I love. Brenton, my friend uh, from Out of the Woods, he put me onto the advert advertising for audition saying, you should definitely go for this. I went for it fearfully because, you know, I, I felt confident in my voice acting and my somewhat my puppetry, but I had no confidence in singing. So getting that job and getting to meet all of the cast who were all just beautiful people, insanely talented, but ultimately really supportive as well, gave me this drive to want to really pursue musical theatre more. And not just musical theatre, but also acting and, and treating it a bit more seriously. I think my problem, when I was in high school, I did drama stream at the McDonald College, which we both went to. Their structure is at the end of the day for two hours, you get to do a certain stream. So I chose drama and I loved it. But I will admit my, my attitude towards it was very blasé and I didn't really understand character or I just thought, you know, you learn your lines, you, you make character kind of believable and I just get on stage and do it. It was it, so obviously my performances were really bland, or at least I thought they were. So as an adult now, and having come from an animation background, I was really keen to apply truthfulness. And I felt that throughout Avenue Q, everyone really suited their characters. Everyone who was cast was perfect for their role. And you could tell that they were bringing a truthfulness because they genuinely loved being that role. So I wanted to try and challenge myself from there while keeping in the realm of acting. And uh, it was Isaac who played uh, Rod, who was my counterpart in Avenue Q, who was directing Lane Cove Theatre's production of Managing Carmen. And we had gotten along great during Avenue Q. And so I sort of nudged him and was very coy going, hey, can I can I audition? Ha uh ha, -huh, please. And he was really nice about it and said, yeah, absolutely, come along. And he, he did warn me that, you know, you may have to do cross-dressing. I was like, that's fine. That's all good. No worries. And that's just because... A, I loved the challenge because that was another thing I'd never done. You know, wearing heels and trying to walk in heels. That was a very fun experience trying to learn. But it, to me, it felt like a, a next logical kind of challenge on finding a truth behind a character because... So the play itself is uh, Managing Carmen, which is written by David Williamson. And it's all centered around Brent Lyle, who's kind of the darling of the AFL world. And he's on the up and up, but he can't perform in front of a camera. And so his agent is trying to get him a therapist and, you know, get him back in the game and, you know, just figure out what's wrong with him and sort it out. And as we, we go through the journey of the play, we realize that he has a penchant for cross-dressing. And sometimes for me, the play was pretty on the nose with the way it handled sexuality. Uh, I think quite often David Williamson can be seen as quite blunt, especially the way he handles male sexuality. It's very blokey and very, oh, you know, it's not this, it's not that. And personally, I, I wasn't offended by anything, but I know that it's a hard play to put on without you know, disrupting certain people's values. So it was interesting to try to find the challenge of giving a truthfulness to both Brent and Carmen. I really wanted Brent to be just a bit of a, a jerk in the beginning, doesn't really care about anyone, quite apathetic, quite bored. And the way that Isaac described Carmen to me was she should suck the air out of a room. So she's full of energy, she's vivacious, she's, she's vibrant and bright. And Playing those polar opposites sort of gave me my start. And so I felt that the drive to find that truth, that's what really got me to get super fit because I felt, honestly, <laughs> the goal there was just, I didn't want to be on stage and people to look at me and go, you're not 24 years old and you're not an AFL player. You just look like a schlubby guy who just got off Avenue Q who's pretending. I, I, I'm very aware I'm watching a play right now. <laughs> so I wanted to physically look the part and uh, mentally apply myself to get the contrast between the two characters. So the momentum there definitely started with you guys, with Avenue Q and, and meeting other musical theater people who just love performing and that connection you have with an audience and creating characters that are honest and likable and you know really entertaining in terms of where that has gone since then and other creative projects i've had i i just like like i said before i genuinely enjoy creating no matter how big or small even if it's just a silly story on my instagram stories if i feel as though a it's going to make someone laugh and b i really enjoy making it then it's worthwhile and it's something that I really want to share. It's so important at times like this that we do share ideas and do share stories. And if even if you have like a little clip that you want to do voice acting for, even if it's an impression of a character you want to do, do it because you never know who might be listening and you never know whose life you might affect in a positive way by doing it. 
I really like what you say about musical theatre people because I think the special thing about Avenue Q, and I've done it twice now, is that you bring the joy of musical theatre and the community of musical theatre to the joy of puppetry. <laughs> and we as a puppeteers are an incredibly tight-knit community and it, it is always the case that when you meet a puppeteer, there is an absolute sharing and camaraderie. And somehow this wonderful show puts the two together and always creates an environment of absolute positivity and incredible generosity among actors, which is something that I think we find is quite rare in a very competitive industry. I think actually the circumstances that we're in now really are going to change that. One thing that I've really loved in sort of introducing you to our, or our listeners um, as a good friend of mine, but also as a great actor is you clearly have an incredible approach to character. And it's been sort of my my will to want to get you on the show because I really think that your approach to character and I'm surprised that you mentioned that you you thought you were quite dry with it at school because you've come at it now from the basis of animation and from the basis of, of puppeteering and voice. It's so, so true, like you mentioned. It's got a real... It's got a real genuine quality to it. So we're going to have a little break. But after the break, I really want to talk to you more about your approach to character. So you are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Cam Ralph. We'll be right back. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Cam Ralph shortly. We believe that podcasts should be advert free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Hello, darlings. This is Ronnie Burkett and you're listening to Talking Sock, my favorite puppetry podcast. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Cam Ralph. We've been talking about Cam's beginnings in animation, voice acting and puppetry. But now, Cam, first you puppeteered, now both in theatre and film and TV contexts. I want to ask you, what's your preference? Honestly, they're both quite interesting and challenging in different ways. But while they both have their pros and cons, I have to say that theatre is much more engaging for me. There's something about creating a performance and having a live reaction from an audience that A, is so addictive and B, is just, I don't know, you feel like you develop a deeper connection with the people you're directly trying to perform for. When you're working in film and TV on a show like Giggle and Hoot, and that's not to, you know, disparage Giggle and Hoot, like it's a beautiful show, very well received by a lot of people, but you don't get to actually see the kids' reactions unless they come into the studio to see you or you're at a live show performing for them live. So we get to hear how the kids react, but we don't necessarily get to see it. And you find you do shape your performance and really push little things here and there once you gauged how the audience is reacting. Like I know when we were doing Avenue Q, we were told very clearly, don't chase the laughs. All that means is when you get a laugh, don't try and push your performance for the next one. Because it's a natural reaction as an actor. You want to go, oh, that got a laugh. I'll go for this next one. But I feel as though when you're performing in front of an audience, you do naturally sculpt it based off how they're reacting, especially the quiet moments. I've really fallen in love with this idea of dramatic puppetry. When if you have a moment where an audience is just dead silent, but they're hanging on every word, as a performer, that's so inspiring and exhilarating to feel. When you, It's almost like you have the audience wrapped around your finger. It sounds kind of domineering and arrogant to say that, but it's, it's really a, a fun experience to be part of where your every move and every sound is influencing their emotional response. So for me, I feel as though theatrical puppetry is more my thing. I feel as though the connection you receive with a live audience is so much more engaging. I, uh, I actually had the chance to do some kids puppetry up here in, on the Central Coast in Etalong. Even just a little show that I put on with my little alien puppet called Durf, which I, I made in two weeks. My mum came over and helped me sew the fur together because I didn't know how to use a sewing machine. I'm Yes, I'm very talented. <laughs> People don't realize this, but I can see Pete shaking his head. <laughs> that is like, if you are a puppet person, you need to learn just so okay. <laughs> I know. I'm I, it's such it's sacrilegious, isn't it? I, I'm it's it's one skill that I am definitely going to learn. It's just the threading of the needle frightens me, Pete. I don't oh. I'm worried my finger's gonna get stuck. I just uh but anyway. Blasphemy, so, blasphemy. Carry on. You're doing your <laughs> Etalong Beach thing. I shouldn't interrupt. So I was doing this kids' puppetry at Etalong, and uh it was it was so fun to see just the raw reaction that kids give. Kids are the best audience because if they love something, they are laughing, they are 
are watching with bright eyes, if they don't like something, they don't heckle or say anything abusive. They literally just walk away. They just get up and leave. And the first time I did a show, I experienced that with a few kids where they just went, eh, and they walked away. And it's so hard to maintain like, oh, what are we doing today, Durf? And like try to stay in the moment when kids are just physically leaving because you're not good enough. Like that was a really good kind of baptism by fire. And I love it. Yes, it's brutal, but they don't mean anything bad by it. But you're getting that raw reaction of this clearly isn't connecting. And so when you do connect, you want to connect more and more and you want to find the little avenues that make this character speak to the kids or adults in this case. There were adults laughing and, and really enjoying it as well. And so I feel as though that relationship is what I really strive for. And, you know, there are times where live TV shows like The Muppets and even, even Giggle and Hoot, they'll have kids come in and, you know, be a part of the, the show. And that I think is when things really come alive, when you get to see a puppet interact with a person because you get to see the emotional states between the two and how they kind of bounce off each other. So I, I really like that side of things. And so the next show that you're about to, to get on board with is Monkey Bar Theatre's Edward the Emu, which unfortunately due to COVID is on a hiatus. It stems to a bigger question as to how do you think this pandemic is going to impact artists and puppeteers in Sydney and in Australia? And how do you think puppetry will bounce back from this? The the situation obviously happening with theatrical productions everywhere is is awful. There are so many actors and performers who have just, they've basically been told, no, nah, you can't do it anymore. I know that one of the performers I was working with, his partner just got a role in a professional production and it was kind of a dream role for her. She was one of the leads and COVID dropped and it all got shut down and they're just not doing it. They, they may do it eventually, but it's just kind of been ripped out from under her. And I know that's happened to a lot of people. So it's, it's, it's a very fluid and very scary scenario. And I know that the answer I've been receiving from a lot of different performers is we just don't know. I think at this stage, people are staying strong and we're, you know, we're definitely supporting each other. It's an industry that it's founded on supporting each other mentally and, you know, being very open about mental health and making sure we're all on the same page uh, with each other's states and making sure that we're all okay. So I feel as though there's a really nice network there of people that are connected and, you know, checking in on us, which is awesome. I get the feeling that in order to bounce back, people are becoming more creative in how they see theatre, how they see content. So I know that certain theatres are starting to live stream shows. I know that in the United States, they're doing live table reads. I feel as though it's forcing artists to, while it's very frustrating and it's it's a very damaging time, it's also forcing them to try and be thinking outside the box um, in terms of how they get their content and how they utilize their strengths and get it out to their audience. I think that adapting with this and trying to become more social media aware is definitely a positive. TikTok is something that is booming at the moment. I know that Jimmy Reese, who played Jimmy Giggle, he's on TikTok and, and killing it. He's doing really well and creating really funny short videos just about being a parent. He's naturally a very funny guy, but he's tapping into what he loves and what he knows really well. And he's just doing things for a bit of a goof and being silly, but really having fun with it. And that's creating an audience. So I think that for puppetry to bounce back, it's tricky because obviously with puppets, there's a physical connection. People are putting their hands into various things without sounding too graphic. Uh, so there's obviously a hygiene issue there where if you are touching a puppet, how do we utilize proper hygiene, keep hands clean? We I, need a I lot of Febreze, that girl. That's a lot of Febreze we're going to need there. Yeah, just <laughs> disinfect the inside of that puppet's butt. Yeah, gotcha. Carry yeah. on. <laughs> You're not wrong, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very fluid situation. And I, I, I can only speak for myself, but I'm just trying to stay as creative as I possibly can. I know that I'm in a very fortunate position with animation. If I didn't have animation, I would definitely be applying for job seeker or, or job keeper if I could, because there would be no other options for me. I know the performing arts industry in Australia has just plummeted because of this and it's terrible. I'm just hoping that it bounces back stronger than ever. A lot of people are donating to theatres that they really love and supporting actors when they can and encouraging people to perform as much as they can online. I'd suggest just staying fluid creatively as well. It was a bit of a point of contention for me whether or not I mentioned the pandemic and coronavirus in Talking Sock as a podcast. And I decided to go ahead with 
addressing it because I think we need spaces to talk about what is happening to artists and what is happening to puppeteers in this pandemic. And if we don't have voices to speak about it and to make it sound like it is a familiar thing that everyone is going through, then it sort of doesn't feel like we're connecting with what's actually happening here to artists and to puppeteers. And so I wanted to take this moment to just mention to our audience that if you do need to reach out and tell us how you are coping as an artist, as a creative in COVID-19 crisis, please talk to us on Twitter and also to make sure that you are connecting with your community in puppetry. And in this time of COVID isolation where a lot of puppeteers and theatre makers are going online and creating content another way in order to just one, stay active and stay creative, but two, change the nature of their work. You've done a lot of this now. You've done a lot of voice acting. You're now doing your voiceovers for EM from home. You're animating sometimes from home and you're creating a lot of your content from home. So I'm interested in what advice you have for people who are starting that adventure into creating content from their bedrooms. What advice do you have in terms of making and writing for YouTube and writing and creating content i'm kind of discovering that myself at the moment i even though i've done various youtube projects none of them have really taken off but it certainly kept me hungry to want to try and create as much as i can i really enjoy the idea of creating anything like a 30 second film putting it online and having just one person say oh that was really funny or entertaining someone in any way shape or form the first bit of advice i would give people wanting to make content online is to really play to your strengths that's the bit of advice that i've heard from a lot of people if you make content for other people, inevitably you're going to fall out of love with it. You're not going to enjoy it. It's going to be more of a job than a passion. And so the first bit of advice is to do what you love. Focus on your strengths. So if you really love drawing, maybe do some speed drawing, time-lapse drawings of artwork, maybe do a live drawing where you host a Twitch video where you're creating a painting or doing a drawing and you're just chatting to people. Sometimes people just really want that accessibility to other people just to type in a chat box and ask a question and and interact with someone on that level. Secondly, keep it simple. I'm guilty of breaking this rule many, many times because naturally as you're in a project, you want to make it bigger and better. And you're looking at it going, oh, it's just missing something. I'm going to add another scene. And you want to make it something so massive that eventually it becomes the task of 20 people as opposed to just one person. The trouble with that, which I've also faced as well, is initially it's exciting because you're inspired and you're saying, I'm getting all this stuff done and it's getting bigger and bigger, but that has a ceiling. And at some point you are going to burn out. Time is going to pass and you're going to think, oh, wow, I've spent so much time on this. I don't really know if I enjoy it anymore. I feel like I've been working on it for so long that I've got tunnel vision. Am I doing the right thing? Is it even funny anymore? Do I even like it anymore? And you're going to start to second guess yourself. So the next bit of advice is to keep it simple. If you make a 30-second video that is hilarious, it will be received so much better than if you made a five-minute video that is, no, it's not bad. And I know because I've fallen prey to that. And I've seen that. I've seen content creators, some videos that I love, tend to only be 15 to 30 seconds. There's a guy I've discovered recently actually called Marshall Cook. His Instagram handle is this Marshall Cook, and he's a filmmaker. He's clearly a very talented actor and filmmaker and cinematographer. And in COVID, he's basically got all of his film gear at home. So he started making short comedy videos. One of them uh, recently was he superimposed himself into George Clooney's role in the scene in Ocean's Eleven, where they're all sitting in the hotel room discussing, you know, robbing the casino. He's basically talking about, we're going to go to Trader Joe's and we're going to shop there. And all the other people are interjecting going, ah, smash and grab job. He's like, no, pay attention. We're just going to shop there. And he's interjected himself in such a clean and crisp way that you can't tell really that he's not in that scene. It's beautifully done and beautifully cut. And that short only goes for about 30 seconds or so, but it it does what it needs to do. It gets in and gets out. It makes you laugh. And it, it gives you this sense of, I've got to show my friends this. Tapping into that is really hard. I don't, I've never understood people that can teach how to make a viral video. I don't think that that really exists. I don't think there's a set formula on this is going to be viral or this people are going to love this because I've been handed some really obscure content that I've absolutely loved that has gone viral, but I never would have found it had someone not shared it with me. Do what you love make it simple, but don't think too much about it going viral because the other bit of advice I've heard is applying truth to your creation. And that kind of ties in with the first point about doing what you love. Any character you create, any short film you make, any story you want to tell, if there's no truth in it and if you don't believe in it, and I know that sounds really cliche, if you don't believe in your story, but it's true, if you don't believe in the characters you've created, the audience isn't going to believe it. And they're going to see that you've created something and sort of shoved it out there. It's going to read on the screen 
clear as day. Whereas if it's something you genuinely laugh at, if you're making a comedy video and it makes you laugh, perfect. It's going to work. People are going to find it funny. And you know, sometimes you're going to find some people don't like it. And that's just the nature of the internet. But if you keep going and you keep creating little tidbits, if you keep working your way up and getting more complicated as you go, you'll find that you develop this rhythm and it becomes this passion of pushing the envelope a little bit. In this personal rebrand that you've had recently, how are you sustaining that and how are you keeping that thriving, particularly now? It was only actually this year or late last year that I should say, where I really thought of the idea of a personal brand. So you're absolutely right. Like last year and early this year, I I definitely rebranded myself. Part of that, I think, came off the back of managing Carmen and trying to take character acting a little bit more seriously and trying to create believability. And one thing I realized uh, was my personal portfolio, it's always been a little scattered because I don't tend to have an animation portfolio now because I've worked for enough time in studios that I know the right people and I've been able to just jump back and forth and keep connected with other animators. So I I never really have an online presence in terms of animation, but for puppetry and voice acting, my previous website, it was just a little bit too jokey and a little bit too, hey, let's, you know, try and be silly. And like, I, I love comedy and I love trying to make people laugh, but it felt a little bit amateurish because I was trying to come across more as goofy and funny as opposed to professional. A personal website, it should be what you want it to be and it should be a personal representation of who you are. But for me, I felt my version was just not I just looked at it one day and thought, this is, I don't even take this seriously. Who, why would an employer look at this and go, yeah, I want to bring this person in for an audition. So I really put my head down and thought, okay, well, how do actors audition for commercials? How do they, you know, go for TV uh, roles or short films. So I attended a few seminars through MEAA, which is our union that supports all voice actors and puppeteers and actors and got into, you know, the idea of casting agents and how to apply for acting roles and what you should be putting on your CV. And I just completely reworked my whole personal brand. And I, I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted it to be truthful. And so, you know, I don't, just post headshots where I'm looking stoic or, you know, that sort of thing. I I wanted to have something a little bit more, (laughs) Pete's shaking his head. Yes, I did do that. But also in my personal bio, I made sure to put a photo that was just me candidly laughing because at the end of the day, there is a section where, you know, if you want to look at headshots, that's fine. But I don't want that to be me. Like I, I, I always want the truthful side of me to come out. And it took quite a while to develop this website because it's it's interesting trying to phrase yourself as an actor, a dramatic actor, but also as a puppeteer. Quite often people look at puppetry as a sillier form of creative art. They think of it as, oh, you're putting on a voice and you're performing for kids. And it's like almost like preschool acting, which is terrible. Like, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think that amazing performances can be created through puppetry, both dramatic, comedic, uh, anything you want, romantic sometimes. Trying to balance those worlds between puppetry and then voice acting, which is obviously for me, a lot of cartoon voices, commercials as well, but cartoons and characters as a as a specialty. And then dramatic acting, trying to blend those three together was quite an interesting feat. And I felt that as long as I focused just on what the essentials were. So when I made a demo reel, I made sure it was really nice and short and to the point and only showed the stuff that I genuinely loved. When I showed headshots, I didn't have like 50 of them up. I just had like four of the best ones I could possibly get. My bio, I didn't ramble too much about where I've been, what I've done, but I tried to put my own creative spin on it on just that would represent me a little bit more. And it all boils down to this idea of truth. I want when people look at my Instagram or if they look at my website, I want them to kind of get a sense of who I am. I don't ever want it to appear manufactured or fake. I want it to just be right there, plain and simple, and you can see it. And if you like it, let's get talking, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's interesting that you are looking for truth in your brand as well as to truth in your characters. I think that's a really lovely sort of poetic point that you've made there. In your industries, you float around in both voice and animation and in puppetry. I want to know who you look up to in that realm of the industry. I've had a think about this recently. And for me, I have to say it's Luke Joselin. Uh, He's quite a popular performer, actor, musical theater aficionado in Australia. I got to meet him through Giggle and Hoot. He's essentially a resident director who comes in. He will quite often direct the music videos that happen uh, throughout the year on Giggle and Hoot. And he's 
a hilarious, crazily talented performer who I've got to see direct. He's got a very sharp eye for performance and in character choreography and how things should be placed. But he's also got a brilliant mind for comedy and performance on stage. My favorite experience watching him perform, I so wish I could have seen him perform in the original Avenue Q that came to Australia. He actually played Nikki and Trekkie and was amazing from all the YouTube clips. I managed to surf through and find and devour. But getting to see him perform live as Lord Farquaad in Packerman's production of Shrek was to say blissful and not sound too ass kissy, I hope. It just, it was such a beautiful performance. That character, Lord Farquaad, is so over the top and so debonair and slimy and hilarious. And he just demolished the stage. Like you could tell he was having so much fun with it. Seeing someone like that who can let themselves go when they're performing. He has no ego about him whatsoever. He's a really laid back, humble, lovely guy who's very hardworking, very supportive of other people and just so inspiring in his work ethic, but also his performance just feels so natural. And I think it's because he's just so comfortable with character and he's so comfortable with imbuing his characters with his own version. He doesn't ever want to make it, or this is just my opinion anyway, he may very well disagree, but he, it doesn't seem as though he ever wants to perform a rendition of a character. He always wants to make it his own version, but still staying true to the original foundations. And so I find watching him perform and seeing where he goes is uh, quite inspiring. I know that he's now the resident director for Shrek, the professional production that was in Melbourne when COVID hit. And from all accounts, it's, it's an absolutely amazing show. He's an incredible guy and I, I wish him all the best. And I hope that one day I get the chance to perform with him. Like that would be a dream. And so that leads me to the question, where do you see yourself going in your career? Is it in puppetry? Is it in voice? Is it in animation? Is it in all three? There's a famous saying that you change careers at least seven times in your life. I, I feel as though I'm probably going to break that and go like nine or 10 or something. I, I go through this stage where every few years I think, no, 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 I found the right path now. This is me. This is what I need to do. I did it with animation. I did it with voice acting. I've done it with puppetry. I feel as though at the moment it's definitely puppetry. I know that a dream for me would be to live and work in New York City on uh, Sesame Street. That would be incredible. Like the chance to be a part of a show with such history and such reverence and so many beloved, incredible characters. And also the, the room for new characters would be an incredible step for me. But, you know, there's always this feeling in the back of my head, what if in three, four years I don't want to do puppetry and I maybe want to get into music or something. And I say this without intending to sound arrogant or anything, but, you know, I always feel as though when I throw myself into something, I give it 100% if I genuinely believe I can do it eventually. I've tried picking up a musical instrument and you know, like a guitar or, or piano, not pick up a piano, but use piano. And uh, I've found that if I'm not passionate about it, or if I'm not really creatively interested in it, I'll use it for a week or two, then I'll put it down. Whereas each creative field that I've fallen into, voice acting, animation, puppetry, I've stuck with it because I really love it. I feel as though that next one that I fall into, whatever it may be, if I love it, I will see it through and, and, and you know, take it to its next logical step. At this stage, it's definitely puppetry. I, d I would love to live and work in New York City. That's kind of the dream. Hopefully after COVID, maybe that could work. But the, the second option is to go to Canada. Canada has an amazing voice industry, especially for computer games and animated series. But also they have quite an interesting puppetry industry over there as well. I've definitely dabbled with those ideas. But at the end of the day, I... I can't marry myself to anything because I've just, I've learned that I do change my mind every few years. And that might be a detriment, this whole idea of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, but I'm actually happy with that. I don't, I don't necessarily mind not mastering anything. I just really want to make sure that whatever I do, I do it well and I do it to a point where people enjoy watching it. Yeah. Sorry to give you a bit of a vague answer there, but uh, it's kind of, it's a little bit up in the air. I, I hope that it uh, stays with puppetry because I, genuinely enjoy it. And I love getting into actually making puppets now. I'm, I'm really trying to teach myself skill sets uh, in that regard. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. I guess I'll see you in line at the auditions then for Sesame Street. Ooh. <laughs> well, I better not audition then. Oh, well. Oh, well. It's all right. Just just know that you're going to be one of the whatnots. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we've had this lovely through line of truth and 
in this episode with you as your personal brand and you in creating characters. What advice do you have to puppeteers creating characters and creating a, a characterization approach in, in voice acting for their characters? I feel as though, and I learned this in animation, the first step when you're creating any character is going to be cliche. It's just normal. It's going to happen because the first thought that enters your head, say you want to create a dog. The first dogs you think of are dogs you've seen in movies like Doug from Up or Rolf the dog or something like that. And that's totally natural because that's the way our brains are built. We draw on what we know. So I would say when you're creating a character, whether it be for voice or puppets, take time with that pre-production phase take draw lots of sketches if you like drawing write lots of notes if you prefer writing and really ask yourself lots and lots of questions because you will find that if you just settle on the first or second or third idea inevitably you won't like it you may like it but i i'm a firm believer that you won't because it won't be the strongest idea you have and it will be somewhat cliche i know i've fallen guilty of that before where i've just launched into an idea going yep 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 this is the guy this the, this is the character I want to make. And then I show it to people and they'll say, oh, that reminds me of SpongeBob or, oh, yeah, that kind of reminds me of this. And I haven't realized that what I've created, it's kind of an amalgamation of lots of different ideas I have. The second thing I would say is to give yourself breaks. That's one thing I've learned that has really helped me when creating characters is to dive into it for sure and write and, and draw and do what you need to do, but give yourself time to step away from it for a day, two days, a week, even a couple of months. I found recently that I I started creating this puppet for a YouTube series that I want to create about a year ago. And I worked on it for about a month or two and then I put it down and just for some reason didn't pick it back up. And then I looked at it again recently and I thought, no, this isn't right. Like it's on, it's good. This element here is really good, but I'm glad I didn't pursue that and dive into it too fast because inevitably I would look at it and think, you yeah, know, this feels, this doesn't feel true to me. It feels a bit manufactured because I was still in that early kind of cliche phase. So stepping away from it gave me that clarity to look at the idea with a fresh perspective and say, okay, I can see now where I need to change that. I'm not saying you have to put ideas down for a year. Don't do that. <laughs> but definitely give yourself a break to step away and, you know, clarify yourself and then and look at it with a fresh perspective. I've just had a thought in my head of another question I wanted to ask you. And this is a personal question, really, that I just self-indulgently going to ask you now. And it's when I've approached voice acting for characters and, you know, you might be asked to do eight characters in a day or you might be coming back to a character that you once had before. How do you find consistency with your character's voice? Like, for example, if you were to do Giggle Fangs three months prior and then have to come back into the studio and ask to do it again, is it muscle memory with that voice? Is there something that you do to train yourself to remember exactly how that voice is created and how to approach it? It's definitely muscle memory. I know with Giggle Fangs, it's been a while since I've done him. I uh, I left the show in August of 2018, I believe. So it's been quite a while. And I know that that voice did take a while for me to really become comfortable with because it's very high. It's very shrilly and you're sort of like, you're squeezing your vocal cords and it's very raspy. But over time, Whenever you're working on a production, Pete, you'll find that the voice you start with is very different to the voice you end with. Because naturally, as you're performing as that character over what may be weeks or months or years, you're going to add little inflections. You're going to change it up a little bit. It's subtle. And the two voices at the beginning and the end will be very similar. But you'll just find that it's a bit richer or a bit more refined by the end. We naturally as performers are always kind of slightly reinventing as we go. And so building on that muscle memory, once you're comfortable with a voice, you then start playing with characterization. And I know with Giggle Fangs in particular, initially he was very, very fast talking and he wasn't very, I personally didn't make him very cutesy. He was a little bit, not whingy, but he was, he did complain a lot. And I felt that my voice was amplifying that a bit too much. And I actually approached them at one point and said, oh, there are points where I feel like I'm maybe going a bit like Giggle like a bit too, is that too much? And they, they were really supportive of me playing with the idea. And so at times I would add little inflections in between chats. So if Jimmy was talking, I'd be going, oh, yeah. Just little little things like that to show that he is, you know, excited about things or, you know, he has little uh, imperfections in his speech, little lisps or little bounces. And I found that was my next step for really finding inspiration in the character because any character you come up with or any character you're doing in voice acting or puppetry, you are going to hit a ceiling where you kind of feel as though you're running out of ideas. So it's really important in those times to play and just 
do something that feels uncomfortable or silly because you may figure out that it takes you down a new path that you weren't anticipating with that character. In terms of longevity, it's definitely muscle memory. You do find you get more comfortable. What voice will feel uncomfortable at first? You will naturally, as you're doing it, develop ways to protect your voice because there have been some voices I've done that are quite damaging to the voice. Uh, one in particular was the Warlord in Tashi, which is a cartoon by Flying Bark Productions made here in Australia. And Warlord is sort of this kind of voice is really gravelly. Oh, I'm going to take you on. And it's like, it's a fun voice, but every time I did that voice, I had to do it at the end of the session. They all knew I had to do it at the end of the session because he was so vocal and so uh, projected and gravelly and he'd always yell and that sort of thing. I had no voice by the end because I was pretty much yelling as this character. I found with even with that character, by the end of the show, he was still ripping my throat apart, but not as much as he did at the beginning. I think because you naturally build up, your body kind of adjusts as you go because it, it wants to protect itself. So your vocal cords are the same as you're doing it and you experience uh, pain. I don't encourage people to do that, but if you do voice and you are experiencing discomfort or pain, you will naturally try to adjust it and try to protect it and avoid that pain in the future. So I feel that adaptability definitely aids in longevity as well as just trusting yourself and trusting that if you've been given the role in the first place, they know that you can do the voice. So from there, it's just down to you discovering new ideas and just having a play. Yeah, for sure. And as a voice actor, what are the tips of the trade that you would like to give as advice for people who are approaching voice in shows. So there are some techniques that I've just picked up through podcasting uh, in terms of how you hold your breath or don't um, which I still do. Say I'm about to start a character. Say I'm about to start on a show. What are the foundation techniques that I should have to get cracking? Okay, so first off, if there's any visual representation they have for the character, that's your first start. It's not going to hurt you if you ask the director, do you have any like concept art for the character or anything I can have a look at? Sometimes when you're doing an audition uh, online and you're sending it in, they will actually send you a production Bible of the show, what it might be, what the cartoon is, or in Giggle and Hoot's case, it was a production Bible featuring concept art of Giggle Fangs. The visual point is first and foremost, if you can see the character, that will influence how you attack the voice. The second thing is just making sure you've done the basics. They do take a little while to get used to, but it's staying hydrated. So you want to make sure you're thoroughly hydrated one hour before you record. So you want to you know, drink a bottle of water one hour before. The next thing is making sure you're properly warmed up. Any singer or musical theater performer will tell you that. Do your your raspberries and your sirens and your breathing and big loud, oh, big loud size. Make sure you warm up for a good half an hour, sometimes up to an hour even. It will sound much brighter in the mic and it will, it will actually allow you to tap into character traits you might not have if you weren't warmed up. There have been the occasional voice sessions for cartoons I've turned up not warmed up, either because I've had to race out the door or I just haven't had time. And you can hear it in the performance. It's subtle, but it's there where it just doesn't sound as rich as it could be. Go back to those basics, hydrate, warm up, and uh, try and reconnect with the visual side of things. Hey, Cam, it's time for our segment called The Geek Out, in which we talk about what we've been doing or getting stuck into while we're stuck home in isolation. I'll start with mine first. So I've been obviously making a bunch of online content, and I had my whole professional camera set up, and I was trying to get my, my mics and my wireless stuff and my lighting all correct. But sometimes you just want to make something really easy. And so I have managed to find a Bluetooth selfie stick that has a tripod, which has been really, really helpful for me in making puppetry videos where I'm showing my making skills. You can buy them for like 20 bucks and they're called Kogan Bluetooth selfie sticks. They're everywhere. So a little plug for Kogan there. Cam, what have you been geeking out on in isolation? Well, now, now I'm geeking out about two things, Pete, because I'm actually on the hunt for a Bluetooth selfie stick. It kind of ties into my geek out because I'm actually geeking out about the one wheel. When I was with Monkey Bar, Cam, who's uh, another one of the performers there, he and I were talking about what it's going to be like on tour. Oh, those were the days talking about being on tour. But uh, we were talking about going to these remote towns because we were going to go all around Australia to lots of different remote places. And we were thinking, how are we going to get around when we're there? And he suggested, I, I'm going to get an electric skateboard. You should get one too. And we'll zoom around these towns. And I thought, that's fantastic. I've never stepped onto a skateboard or a snowboard. So I was... Uh, apprehensive, but really kind of eager to have a look. And the more I looked at skateboards, the more I thought, okay, they're really cool, but it sounds as though you do need to have some experience with skateboarding. I mean, you, you can definitely learn having never done it, but it, it helps a lot. I then 
discovered that a lot of the people I was looking at online on YouTube who were reviewing uh, skateboards were also reviewing the one wheel. And the general consensus was once they got the one wheel, they stopped bothering with the other skateboards. They were still reviewing, but their personal skateboard changed to be the one wheel. And the reason for that is because it can go anywhere. It can go on grass, gravel, tarmac. It can trail ride. You can ride it at night. It's got lights. It's water resistant. It's a tank, basically. And so I saved up my money and I got one and I've been riding it and I've been loving it. Speaking as someone who's never stepped onto a skateboard or a snowboard, within a week, I was riding around fairly comfortably. It's it's a steep learning curve, but it's one that I wanted to do. And I got to say, it's really fun, man. So my plug is for the one wheel. And also, you had this incredible video, a bunch of Instagram stories where you've been just riffing off every 80s movie that involved a skateboard, like Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. And it's just given me the most amazing point of nostalgia. It's been really, really (laughs) clever. Oh, guys, we are out of time. So, Cam, thank you so much for talking sock with us today. Cam, where can we find you? Oh, well, Pete, oh, um, you can find me. <laughs> you can find me at camralph.com, very inventive name, or you can find me on Instagram at camo.ralph. Thanks, Pete. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening with us today, and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we'll talk sock again soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week, we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials, and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions and check out our episode blog at oneorangesock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout-out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangesock.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Vanier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock.